All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition on the on the margin. I am joined, as always, by my traveling, I don't have an adjective for that, co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. He was in Europe last week. Welcome back, Mark. Well, thank you. Thank you. And um, so a couple things. One, it's great to be back, although I was in, in the UK uh, and they don't have summer over there and, and it's hot here. So for the sock reveal, we're just we're just going with this. All right. So nice. it's a Bitcoin roller coaster. Uh, and the only reason it's a Bitcoin roller coaster is because I actually wore the Bitcoin bull socks when I was in Europe. So they're in the washer. So I'm taking full credit for this pump over the last few days because uh, nice. I put on those bull socks right, literally right at the nadir on 4th of July um, when we were walking around uh, Ireland. So a couple things. One, uh, people are just lucky. I, I mean, have a shirt. I should go full Hugh Hendry. Like no shirt, bathing suit. It is so hot in North Carolina. I mean, it was like, you know, in the 50s and low 60s in uh, the UK and and uh, it is 99 and humid here. In fact, the windows were like condensing last night. So anyway, um, but the, the roller coaster is important because yes, uh, I I actually do believe we are back, right? My Embrace Volatility shirt, that's, that's the good thing you want. Um, fortunes are made when everybody's afraid and everyone thinks, you know, we're, we're going lower and it's possible, not, not, not probable, but it's possible that we're now locked in that roller coaster track. And, and we're going to do kind of, if you remember the first quarter of 19, we were coming out of the bear market. Um, we got in this track and people were so convinced it wasn't coming back. You know, we were at 3,000, then we we're at 4,000, then we we're at 5,000, then we we're at 6,000. And, and suddenly it was just like, boom, boom. Now we did have a little whoopsie-doo. Uh, I think we hit 14 and then went back to eight. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't like full on straight on bull market, but, but it was definitely the bull was back. So I, 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 th I think that's certainly possible. Mm. Um, couple so you quick think takeaways. we bottomed potentially? I, I do, I do. I, look, we talked about this a few weeks ago maybe a month ago now. Um, yeah, it was definitely a month ago because it was consensus uh, that the, the longer we stayed at that 30,000 level, the more risk there was to that cathartic down move like November of 18. And you know, I, just, you know, I looked at the same number from 6,000 to 3,200 and I said, okay, that would be 15K. You know, we got 17.5. That, that kind of feels pretty cathartic. And yeah. so then we kind of bounced around the bottom and we kind of did a couple of things. So I said, I don't think we're out like we're going straight back to 60, 70,000. But I do think um, it's, it's highly likely, highly possible that we are uh, in a bull phase. If, capital I, capital F, if people stop trying to cause the negative outcome, right? By not supporting the ecosystem. Like all this hate against CFI and is, is mind boggling to me. I mean, I just don't get it. I mean, if, if a bad person did a bad thing, and, and again, I, I'm not passing judgment on, on certain people, but if 
certain people are proven to have done bad things, they should be punished and those companies should go away. But the people who didn't do anything wrong and who are just operating a, a viable, important business in the ecosystem, like lending, I, I don't understand the vitriol against it. Mm. And and you and I have talked about this, right? If if the whole idea of Bitcoin maxis and, and now beyond maxis is that we're just supposed to take our Bitcoin and put it in cold storage and you know bury it in the backyard. That ain't money. That's gold. We've had gold for 5,000 years. That does not build the new money. That does not build the future of finance. That mm. is going backwards, not forwards. I want to go forwards. Yeah. I would say um, for folks who are interested in monetary history, I mean, you can see different waves of, uh, but basically that there are two things that you need in a functioning monetary system. There's more than that, but basically you need some sort of anchor, right? Some sort of either commodity based or metal based or whatever heart, like scarcity kind of money. Um, and then you need credit, right? And you need some sort of mechanism uh, to create credit. So if, if, if you are advocating only for the existence of money, that's just that's just a pretty proven thing to not work historically, right? And nations have failed, right? Because they've failed, they've failed to adopt uh, a system of credit. What I will say at the same time is that these things exist on a spectrum, and we've probably swung, at least in fiat, right, way too far towards the exactly. creation of like right, ratio of credit to money. Um, yes. Yeah. Oh, Michael. I mean, again, so perfectly summarized. So now people don't have to go read the, the you know hundreds of hours of, of history that you have to to understand that, but. But J.P. Morgan, right, said this. He said, gold is money. Everything else is just credit. And that is true. A cent of money. Sorry, no, I'd look, yeah. But if, if you don't need to read 100, just read this book by Niall Ferguson. It is yeah. incredible. It's one of my favorite books I've ever read. It's really good. The Ascent of no, Money. No, and, and, but, but it's so important. And, and J.P. Morgan's really important now because, you know, everyone's calling SBF the J.P. Morgan of our time. Now, a couple things about J.P. Morgan that, that need to, to be made very clear. Not the nicest man, okay? <laughs> I mean, did some amazing things, and I have all admiration, way more successful than I will ever hope to be. But, you know, kind of did some dark stuff. And the whole Knickerbocker Trust thing, which is kind of what we're living through here, this whole bank run, that is being fomented by people on Twitter, get your assets off, you know, put in cold storage and get it off the, stop it, just stop it. That is what JP Morgan did to Knickerbocker Trust. Knickerbocker Trust was formed and trust companies as an alternative to the banks were taking deposits. So what did JP Morgan do? He started a rumor, false rumor by the way, that Knickerbocker Trust was struggling and everyone ran and took their money out of Knickerbocker Trust, and he got to go buy it for pennies on the dollar. <laughs> that is how, because we can go back to the beginning of all these problems for CFI. When did it start? It started with, I will say, perhaps the banks pressuring regulators to clamp down uh, on, on these, these lenders. Why? Because they were siphoning assets out of fiat deposits into digital asset deposits, crypto deposits. And the banks didn't like that. They took exception to that. And so what do you do? You throw out a rumor that these guys are going out of business or these guys are going out of business. I don't know. History, history rhymes. Yeah. What I will say is um, 
you know, at different levels of how large you are as a company, right? There's a different level of, of competition. And when you get to a certain size of company, you really level up uh, in terms of the, the competitive things that go on. And what I would say um, is that PsyOps, that's almost like a thing that's joked about on crypto Twitter a lot. Yeah. PsyOps is yeah. real. PsyOps real. is a very real tactic uh, that people employ. And it sounds conspiratorial, but it's true. People use Not it. conspiratorial. Um, and and yeah. that's the thing. That's the thing. Remember, conspiracy theory was coined by the CIA to divert attention from people looking at the facts of the story surrounding JFK. And so anytime something's labeled a conspiracy theory, you've probably hit a nerve. You're probably pretty close to the truth. And so a PSYOP is absolutely a yeah. tactic when you are fighting, not a hard kinetic war, but a, you know, a war in, in business. For sure. And in a hard kinetic war. They're oh, both, and in a hard kinetic They're both. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're propaganda both. for sure. Okay. All right. You want to hear, here's something that actually blew my mind. Um, look up, everyone go here. Maybe we can link it in the notes. Um, just look up sabotage, the, uh, the, the Wikipedia definition of sabotage and look at some of the, the main strategies. Hold on. Let me just see if I can actually get this. Uh, major tactics. Shoot, I will link it in the notes, but it yeah. is nuts. It is banana. So it's, you know, it's things like create as many committees as possible. Ask stupid and inane questions. Uh, inject things that don't make any sense. It's crazy. And you know where you can actually see it? Um, I'd say in, you could see pretty pretty interesting evidence of sabotage in like modern government and in DAOs, I will say. I would full, I would not uh, put, it, put it past anyone that like, Competitive DAOs are sending these these little plants yeah. in and just distracting everyone with stupid and inane uh, lines 100%. of questioning. No, no, and, and, distraction. And you, the point on the on the governments. I mean, look look what happened. In fact, you know, I'm I'm going to get travel banned. So you know, a few years ago, I took my little guy over to to um, blockchain uh, France. Yeah, and Notre Dame burned down. Not burned down, but but caught on fire. Literally the day we I was were like, there. did I miss this? No, no, no. This is unbelievable, right? I mean, you know, whatever. Three or three years ago, you know, blockchain uh, France or Paris, blockchain Paris, mm. and we were standing outside and it's on fire. Um, this time we're in London, and the British government implodes. Bojo's out, and to your point, it was all these committees. And people who were heads of different committees resigning but put pressure on him. And then you just informed me, because I was on the, the plane last night, uh, that Abe-san just got assassinated. Which, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. So there's some big stuff going on. There are big things going on. Let's put a because I want to dig into both of those issues. Now, I'm going to caveat, as always, by saying you and I aren't geopolitical experts. At least I'm not. You might be. But... Uh, <laughs> But it's, you know, I'm not I feel an expert like, in anything, actually, but uh. <laughs> I feel like I feel like it's important to comment on this because the biggest news is not happening inside of crypto markets. But I want to caveat that I found. OK, I found the definition here. Listen to this. There are many examples of physical sabotage in wartime. This is coming from the Wikipedia page of sabotage. However, one of the most effective uses of sabotage is against organizations. The OSS manual provides numerous techniques under the title general interference with organizations and production. Listen to this. Does this sound familiar? When possible, refer, refer all matters to committees for further study and consideration. Attempt to make the committees as large as possible, never fewer than five. Bring up irrelevant issues as frequently as possible. Haggle over precise wordings of communication, minutes, resolutions. In making work assignments, 
always sign out unimportant jobs for assign out unimportant jobs first, assign important jobs to inefficient workers with poor machines. Just go back. Just I'll I'll link this in the notes. Just Wait a minute. people the should Biden, take a look at this. The Biden executive order created yeah. the largest committee ever, and then we bring up the FUD all the time. I mean, there you go. Yeah, right? it's just funny. I I mean, but uh, but. Point being, sorry, to use one super nerdy analogy about psyops, and then um, then we'll go on to some of the other stories because we've got stuff to cover. Uh, <laughs> I'm stealing an analogy from a friend, but psyops, I think, can be used uh, both for good and evil. I will sure. say, many people think that they can use, but as soon as you adopt the evil tactics, then the intent becomes evil as well. It's like using the dark side of the force, right? As soon as you surrender to the dark side, even if it's for good reasons, right. like Anakin did, right? right? Uh, to save yeah. Padme's life, yeah. he adopted the tactics. And then the intent followed. He tried to save Padme's life. He used the force for bad. And then Beautiful. he became Darth Vader. So Beautiful. anyway, be careful with psyops. Let's talk about politics here for a second Beautiful. with the caveat that, again, you and I aren't experts. But I do want to make a connection because I feel like, and maybe the theme of this episode is, an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. And I think that's happening around financial markets, right? Because you've mm -hmm. got, in the United States... All signs are pointing to a recession, right? The Atlanta Fed, mm -hmm. you know, the GDP contraction that they're predicting for this quarter is like negative 2.1%, which is a pretty unprecedented reading, right, in terms of economic yep. contraction. At the same time, all signs are pointing towards QT ramping up. Interest rates are still ramping up. So, again, we're tightening into a recession here. And these are two really difficult... This is cause, I think this is starting to trickle out into political strife, right, because nobody is happy about this. We've got... Rampant inflation that is stickier than everyone kind of thought, but at the same time, we've got, you know, all signs are pointing to economic slowdown, and I think other countries are in a very similar boat, right? You look over to our uh, our friends over in Europe; it's a difficult situation over there, right? Uh, in the UK, inflation is the worst it's been in you know a number of decades. Uh, electricity prices, uh, right, in Germany are like have done basically a 10x. Um, recently, and I think I, I saw, again, these, these stories are coming in, but I saw the largest um, supply, power supplier in Germany is mandating that people turn their turn heat off at night, which yeah. is, I mean, yeah. that's some pretty crazy stuff. So No, it's crazy it, stuff. It's starting to ripple out and voters are starting to, I mean, so Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the UK, just resigned, um, as you mentioned before. And again, there's, there's a lot of details. This is an emerging story, right? So we don't have a whole, an enormous amount of details here. But um, Shinzo Abe, right, the uh, the ex prime minister of, uh, and I think the longest running prime minister of Japan, yeah. was just yeah. assassinated. That's really, um, you know, for Japan. I was, I was briefly reading about this, but gun violence is extremely rare in Japan. Incredibly rare. Um, so, like last year, there were I think six gun deaths in Japan compared yeah. to the thirty three some odd thousand. <laughs> In the yeah. United States, I'm yeah. laughing. That's not funny at all. It's no, it's horrible. not funny. But it, it's it's not funny. But it, it's tragic. But to your point, and, and this is only anecdotal, right? Yeah. I was I was there for I was in London for a few days. I was in Scotland for a few days. I was in Ireland for a few days, and taking our little guy to on his first international trip, and London, not busy, definitely not busy. I yeah. mean, we walked right up to the changing of the guard. I mean, it, it just was not busy. Yeah. And um, that was interesting. And then the whole Bojo thing happened while we were there. And I I think it's it's interesting in that I think it is part partly, right? This this currency devaluation. And that that's the part that I, I keep 
you know, quibbling with people on. I don't think it is inflation, right? Inflation is caused by, you know, demand pull and, and limited supply. This is just debauchment of currency because governments have no way out other than to debauch their currency. I mean, look, look at the currency. It's just getting destroyed, right? The euro is down to par. The, 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 I mean, I felt like a king traveling around because, uh, you know, the currencies in, in Europe were so, I mean, the UK were so weak. Uh, pound was weak. The euro was weak. Um, and, you know, the, the one good thing about that is, you know, I got to have a lot of Guinness for, for not a lot of money, uh, which is maybe the greatest drink ever in the history of mankind. Um, I, would, I would tend to agree with you. I've got uh, one, one quick comment on that, actually, because I want to get your, your sense of how important that is. Like I actually had someone was pointing that out, that the euro is almost at par with the dollar. And I was like, wow, that's pretty crazy. Here's a chart from here, let's see if I can share my screen here. Uh, but this is a chart from Andreas Steno Larsen. I'll link it in the show notes. I, I'm not figuring out how to, but it's basically the the nominal effective exchange rate. Uh, you're looking at the mm -hmm. euro versus the U.S. dollar. Um, we'll 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 link this back to the video. But basically, you can see, you know, from this chart actually that it's really it seems like the the U.S. dollar is strong, and the, whereas the euro is kind of trading with and where it normally does, at least going back to 2006. It seems like like my interpretation of this right, we've got a strong dollar, right, because everyone's risk off, and that's that's bad for asset prices kind of globally. So that's my, but what, what am I missing here? Like, is that, is that the reason why? I, think, I don't see, I, I, I go the other way. I, I actually don't think the dollar is strong. Mm. Right? Look at it versus the renminbi and it's, it's really not, you know, over the last yeah. couple of years, it's, it's, it's flat. What, what's weak is everything else. The Euro is super weak. The pound, yeah. crazy weak. Yeah. Uh, the yen, like stupid weak. And, and the, the yen has to be stupid weak. And for a while, it was holding up because of the massive global carry trade where people would borrow, you know, at zero in, in, in yen and, and do, you know, foolish levered trades. Um, and so what was interesting is historically over the last couple of decades, when global economic activity would go down or the market would go down, the yen would strengthen. And you're like, well, why are the yen strengthening? That doesn't make any sense. But it was because of this, this carry trade. Well, that yen strength was causing uh, and caused Abisan to resign for the second time. People forgot that he resigned the first time over a stomach virus that came out of nowhere. It's, uh, so there's a there's a lot to the obvious story that we can talk about some other time. But um, and you know you think about um, how these countries have to deal with their their debt problem. What do, they, what do they have to do, right? Japan's already figured it out. They're just going to buy it all, and then they're going to do a debt jubilee. So they're going to buy them all, literally everyone, and Abe-san is literally like, you know, at any price. And so now the only way to do that is at the expense of a super weekend. So the yen is collapsed from like 110 to 136 or something. I mean, it's crazy collapse. And so everyone says, well, the DXY is, you know, doing well. I'm like, no, it's not. It's the euro's down and the yen's down. So fine. We are the best of the worst, which is the Western uh, currencies. And what people are missing, it's right under their nose and they're just missing it, is China's just like waving it in. Like, okay, mm -hmm. Russia, we'll take all your oil. Come on, bring it. And oh, all you countries that don't want the dollar and the petrodollar system, join our little system. And they just got approved. Uh, China just got approved Oh, shoot, what was it? It was they were already in, they're already in the SDR, 
they just got approved for some big thing with the EU to do direct transactions in renminbi. Like this is a big deal. Like it's the first time that something other than, than petrodollars. And look, if the petrodollar shifts to this axis in the East, I think it's game over for King Dollar. And that is the plan, right? That is the plan for China. And it's a long-term plan. Everybody says, no, you're missing it. You know, the U.S. is dominant. I'm like, okay, you keep believing that and, and just keep watching what China does. Every time there's a crisis, just like J.P. Morgan, they come in with liquidity. And they bought up the Greek assets and they bought up all this, this shipping assets around the world. They bought all the ports. Uh, they bought all the mines in Africa. Um, now they're buying all the Russian oil. Oh, seems like a pretty interesting trade. Yeah, I saw um, that you know the the amount of energy that Russia is exporting to China and India as well, right? Um, I mean, I mean, even if you this is just I mean, it's partly a lesson in just how hard investing is. But uh, I mean, the, who would have expected that the ruble would be the best performing currency of the year, right? In current conditions, definitely um, not the administration in the United States. No, no, who certainly are gonna not. Cripple the, yeah. the ruble. Yeah, cripple um, the uh, the economy in Russia. We're in recession. They're not. Yeah. Who's crippled? Yeah. I mean, it's, t I mean, it's tough. Like their current, their current account, uh, is, is in surplus. I, I don't, it's hard to know, right. The data coming out of Russia and what's actually going on sure. with their economy. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird wonky situation. And I, I agree for those of you who aren't familiar with the petrodollar, we've done some episodes of, of on the margin about it before, but it's basically, it's the underlying. So I guess the one People always say nothing backs fiat currencies, but the one thing that sort of backs fiat currencies is oil, right? Because what we did was we we have this relationship with the big oil producers, most notably Saudi Arabia, right, where they need to purchase, um, uh, you know, their dollars or their their oil that they export needs to be purchased in dollars, right? And that kind of links the the price of oil with with the dollar backs it to a certain degree. Um, although, so that fracturing that would be a huge blow for dollar supremacy. I think worldwide. Well, I mean, why hey, look at look at that that you know, all the the effort that's being expended by the administration in the U.S. to try to get a meeting with MBS over in Saudi, and he's like, "Sorry." Now I guess there is going to be one, and and I, I've been saying this all year, right, since January, that uh, mark my words, right before the election, and we're starting to get there. So kind of August September, oil prices are going down. Because magically, Saudi is going to find some extra oil. Now, there are those that have said, no, Anais um, An An Anaji on Twitter has this great, you know, uh, stream about, no, they don't, they, they really can't. And he's forgotten more about Saudi than I'll ever know. But, but I, I do think there's going to be uh, some interesting stuff to get oil price down. Because look, presidential popularity in oil and gas prices are like this. Like when the president comes out and says, you gasoline distributors are evil and you need to get the price of the pump down. What are you talking about, dude? Most of the cost at the pump is tax. It's not the actual, you know, it's not that gas stations don't make a lot of money on gas. They make money on cigarettes and alcohol and, and uh, lottery tickets. That's how they make their money. One thing that caught my eye this week was, uh, so Michael Furry, Michael Burry, right, who's been largely right as a Supporter of crypto, he's been largely right, right about what was going to happen, um, yep. and he's also been right about a whole bunch of other things, including for those of you who aren't familiar, right? I mean, he's the of Big Short, 
uh, fame, right? Uh, so uh, he warned that the Fed may alter their course um, later this year, right? So he's got this uh, got this tweet. He's referring to basically supply gluts that are happening at big retailers, right? So he's saying the supply glut at retail is the bullwhip effect. Google it. Worth understanding for your investing endeavors. Deflationary pulses from this leads to dis disinflation in CPI later this year, which leads to the Fed reversing itself on rates and QT and basically that equals cycle. So we linked to this CNN story about retailers considering letting customers keep items they return rather than having to take the items back. So there's an, so so basically here's my interpretation. Demand planning is very hard. I actually think there is a um, there's a fundamental misnomer. Uh, when people talk about forecasting, it is not forecasting; it is target setting. And one of yeah. the one of the the things that make it difficult to operate a business in times of when the Fed is stepping in and messing around is when they inject liquidity. They're injecting credit, and that leads to demand. So it makes it very difficult for like a big box retailer, right, to plan for that enormous surge in demand and then huge fall off in demand because there are lead times that you need to stock all of these goods uh, in your store. And it seems like what happened is the Fed basically gave a false flag to these um, to these big businesses like, hey, yep. uh, people yep. want a lot more stuff. And that was not a reliable signal. It was a it was basically an artificial signal. And now they're stuck with this enormous amount of inventory. And what happens there from an accounting perspective is if they can't move that inventory, then they have to take a big asset right down. Uh, it's getting, you know, that appears on their P&L as inventory that's not good anymore. Uh, they'll probably wait on that for a few History years. History rhymes, as as they Michael. Can. Look, this is exactly, again, I've been talking about this for a while. And by the way, um, the hashtag Powell Pivot, I coined it months and months ago. Mm. Uh, so if you just, you know, Google or do a Twitter search on Powell Pivot, you'll, you'll find it. And he that's, definitely- That's a pretty good, pivot. that's a good one to have coined. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but I mean, people hate my hashtags, but I use them as filing system. It's, a, it's my filing system, right? I know every kind of topic that I care about by the hashtag. So it's not really for them. It's for me. Um, it's like my long letters and people would, would yell, no one wants to read a 50 page letter. Like, I know it's about me it's, it's not to writing it. It's if, if I don't, if I can't read what I wrote, how do I know what I think? So writing is, is really important. Um, uh, if you want to read it, great. But so I think the, the interesting thing here is um, this cycle of, of, again, back to credit, right? Credit is really important. You know, if money doesn't circulate, right? If you print money and it doesn't get deposited and circulate, then it doesn't do anything. And so for years, right, we had all this creation of money, right? The money supply grew and grew and grew and grew. And yet the velocity of money kept going down and down and down. And we had no inflation. Look at Japan. Japan for 30 years has printed. They make us look like pikers when it comes to money supply. And yet there's no inflation in Japan. Zero. Nada. So inflation is not always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Milton Friedman won a Nobel Prize. I did not. But it's just not true. It has to do with the circulation of money. And back to fractional reserve banking, which is actually a good thing, not an evil thing. Excessive fractional reserve banking is bad, Lehman, et cetera. Um, but, but ultimately, the, the, the issue we have here is one of, uh, I love your, your term, false flag. When you, you know, s signal strength or lack thereof with something that isn't real, it causes bad behavior. And yeah. so, you know, 
right after the lockdowns, right, which again, I will argue one of the dumbest economic decisions the world has ever made to, you know, shut down global economies to fight a respiratory virus makes no sense. Um, but that happened. And then you had this massive response on the other side to, you know, show people that there was this going to be this big recovery. Well, no, it was just a recovery in the printing of money. There wasn't any recovery in, in activity. And oh, we created more jobs than anybody, the current administration. Like, what are you talking about? Those people had to sit in their house and then they went back to work and we're still below where we were. That's not creating jobs. Those, those jobs weren't eliminated. They were just gone temporarily. So I'm, I think the same thing with, with inventories. And back to my point on, on 2001 was in 2000, we had this massive bubble in tech, right? Just like the massive bubble we just had in crypto and tech and all this other stuff. And then in 2001, Cisco came out and said, well, yeah, all that inventory, you know, we thought people were going to buy, they're, they're just not buying it. And what they do, they wrote it down. This is, the, this is the funny trick. They wrote it all down to zero, took a massive hit. And they said, oh, well, they lost a lot of money, Jesus. Their stock should go down. Oh, no, no, it's going to rally because now they're going to have all these easy comps. I'm like, well, well, no, that's, a, that's illogical. They just took this massive write down. Um, but then this is the great trick. And it worked for a while. Then they started reselling the inventory that they had marked to zero with zero cost of goods sold and showing these massive profits. And people bought it and the stock zoomed to the final peak in uh, first quarter of 2001. And then they're like, oh, yeah, that's not really the way you do it. So they had to restate earnings for many, many years and down 84%, right? <laughs> and the tech bubble crashed. And, all, and then the problem is when everything starts crashing, then you find out who's overlevered, and the overlevered companies, WorldCom, Enron, you know, all these companies vaporized. Leverage vaporizes equity, right? Leverage is a good tool; it can be good. You, know, you have leverage on your house, you know, that's fine. But too much leverage, whether it was the banks being forty times levered, or you know, long-term capital, or whatever, Lehman Brothers, you know, London subsidiary you know, being whatever, or Deutsche Bank at I think 42 times levered at one point, um, you know, leverage will vaporize equity. And that's what's happened in crypto. And that's what Burry pointed out last February. A year ago, so a year and a half ago in February, Burry said that that move from 10 to 60 was all leverage, right? That was Binance and Bitfinex and, you know, people speculating on, on leverage. Says that, that, that will go away. That's not, that's not creation of wealth. It's not equity. That is artificially induced steroidal movement. And when you when you stop, it's like I love the picture of Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire. You know, when they're playing and now, like that's not even the same person. It's like it turns out, if you stop taking steroids, you return to normal. And you know, juice is juice. So I I think we are definitely in a two thousand one moment. Mm -hmm. which means we could have the final drop in 2002 in the traditional markets because they're still overvalued. And here's the crazy thing. Bitcoin, and not to make it all about crypto, but Bitcoin today, relative to its long-term history, and I'm not saying the long-term history has to be right, mm -hmm. but it has some, some, some rightness to it, right? Yeah. 
just like any long-term trend, uh, Bitcoin today is in the bottom 2%. It's ever, well, this was a couple days ago at 18,000, but you know, now at 21,000, it's a little higher. But at 18,000, it was in the bottom 2% of all time cheapness relative to its history. Whereas even with the NASDAQ correction, it's still above average. It's still like in the 75th or 80th percentile of expensive. So there's still a lot of gap that could close. People say, but yesterday, you know, all these, all these tech stocks were up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Here's one that I can't figure out. Who is the marginal buyer of Bitcoin? at the current size of the market. So like, I, I think Bitcoin is now at the size where it needs to be, we, we need institutional money to move yeah. to move in to, to, to buy it and have it ultimately move higher. The problem is Bitcoin, in my opinion, is still incorrectly categorized as a risk asset, right? It, it, yeah. People lump yeah, yeah, crypto yeah. in yeah. as one whole big thing when really, actually, if you look at the core holder base of Bitcoin, they're kind of like gold bug-esque. Right. I mean, they're 100%. like, right. Yes. It's this really funny yeah. mismatch where like the vast yeah, yeah, majority yeah. of the world is like, this is the riskiest of risk assets, but the holders of it are like, this is gold 2.0. It's just a really yeah. funny mismatch. And the valuation, as you currently point out, right, Bitcoin is very cheap relative you know, to its historical valuation. NASDAQ is still extremely expensive. We haven't seen the earnings correction yet. We've seen the valuations reset. We haven't seen the earnings reset yet. So I feel like it's popular, you know, consensus that there's another big leg down coming. Yeah. Um, in in uh in markets how do we but my my question is like who is the mar who is the next marginal buyer yeah. of bitcoin and i know one always comes but like who is that going to be because it looks like the people that might buy bitcoin uh you know the larger more institutional traditional money managers are you know they're going to be in risk off mode for a while because tech stocks are getting slapped so that's my that's what i can't figure it's out it's a really it's a really good insight and and that's why i get so angry at the you know the the negative view on on CFI, right? We need CFI to go from TradFi to DeFi. We need CFI as a transition. We need to bring in more people who say, you know what? Yeah, I could take some fiat money, convert it to a stablecoin, deposit it, and get paid interest. And then if I make enough. I could buy a little bit of this, this long-term uh, appreciating asset, Bitcoin, and then I could deposit that. And maybe I could use that as collateral to go build something. Remember, you know, most small businesses are built by, you know, mom and pops. That, that's how small businesses are. And how did they do it? They leveraged their largest asset, their home. So they took out second mortgages and home equity lines of credit, and they built businesses. Huh. So if we if we replace that real estate asset with another asset that's actually not inflationary but deflationary, meaning that it has a finite amount, so it has a scarcity value, and we could borrow against that easily, that sounds like a really good thing. Yes, that is a really good thing. And so um, we need those people to to be the marginal buyers. Uh, so we need the average person to not be running away from C5, but to be running toward it, converting money out of fiat into digital assets, using those digital assets to create credit, as you so wonderfully summed up before. The other thing is take off the privilege, the American privilege, 
and it's Western privilege too, it's American, European, Japanese, and look at countries that don't have our life, right? That see Bitcoin very differently. People in Venezuela, Argentina, Turkey, see Bitcoin very differently. And those people, now they don't have a lot of capital individually, but broadly, that can be a, a really good thing. So increasing that usage and people like Jack and others who are going down, Jack Mahler is going down to El Salvador and, and Jack, you know, at Square trying to do, you know, maybe I, you know, I have a son, Jack, maybe I need to change my name to Jack, um, be more successful. Um, Dan's and Jack's, it's all Dan's and Jack's in this. Uh, but that's a long winded way of saying what we need is very broad participation. It can't just be some big pension fund saying, I'm going to buy some because to your point, they're in fear mode right now. They're not going to do this, right? What they should do is this, right? You should embrace volatility. When you have a super volatile asset that has a big drawdown, that's when you should buy it. Whether that's Amazon stock, right? Every year for 26 years, double digit drawdown, average 31%, was down 39% a couple, you know, about a week ago. Now it's not. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of assets in this ecosystem that have drawn down a lot because of their volatility and people should be accumulating. But I think it has to be more than just institutions. I think it has to be what, what I refer to or I, what I referred to in this, this podcast, the Coins podcast, which is actually really good. Uh, I didn't make it, but I participated in it. And uh, we talked about this, that it's the next billion. Right? We have 100 million people, give or take, that kind of you know, tell each other how great you are and how smart we are and you know, we all make ourselves feel good. But that doesn't matter. What we need is the next billion and then ultimately three, four billion because, you know, three billion of the world's population can't because they don't have Internet. Um, but we need to get that next billion uh, to view it. And that's what I say. If if all it is, is put it on a hard drive and, and you know, bury it in your backyard, it's game over. We're not going higher. We must create the digital form of the monetary ecosystem, which includes lenders, depositors, borrowers, spenders, users, not just, you know, as one, and look, I, I like Michael Saylor. I think he's, he's, uh, uh, I mean, I'm not friendly with him, but, but I, I, I don't, I'm not, a, I'm not a hater, but when he got up at, at, uh, the big con- the conference down in Miami and said, never sell your Bitcoin, like stop. The people who own it now do need to sell some, not all, but some to get participation. Because remember, for every buyer, there has to be a seller. We can't make more. That's the whole point. So if we want these other people to buy, someone's got to be selling. And that doesn't make you a bad person. I think, you know, when you listen to Sailor talk, I mean, he's a really divisive character, right? He's got some strong strong opinions and he's not afraid to let you know it a lot of the time. I, my personal interpretation of him, I, I actually really like the bet that he made with his company, MicroStrategy. Mm-hmm. I view it as like, look, he, and I've heard him explain it like this too. It's like, I'm a software business. I'm competing against Google and Microsoft. They have infinite capital at their disposal. They essentially have unregulated monopolies. I can't compete. What I have is a cash flowing business. That cash flow, because of 
you know, the current dynamic of inflation is I, I'm going to I'm going to watch that melt away yeah. Bitcoin. So basically turn the, the cash flow that I'm producing now, which will probably dwindle into a pile of cash that will appreciate over a period of time. I like yeah. that bet. Yeah. What I what I what's harder for me to get telling anyone to take out leverage to buy anything is just um, you, you, you just you yeah. can't do that. I, I don't know. I just don't think that's a good. You know, we accept leverage to buy a house, but you know why? You can live in a house. You can't live in a stock. Well, you don't mark to you market. Can't live every in Bitcoin. Day. You yeah. don't mark to market every day. Yeah. You just don't. Yeah. If we mark to market our our house, we would never put four times leverage on it or ten times leverage on it or like an FHA FHA loan, you know, ninety seven percent leverage. We'd never do that. No. no way. If you had to mark to market every day, if you had to follow it like a REIT, no way would you do that. And and so, look, leverage in securities, it's fine too. Right? People have bar, margin accounts, but it's regulated, right? I mean, you can't take more than a certain amount of leverage if you're a registered product. And you, and there's a certain amount of leverage, like you take 50% loan to value. Yeah. And I might even do that in an asset that I believed in, particularly if I bought it at a cheap entry point. I, I, might, I might put a little bit of leverage, but... I've never mortgaged my house to buy an asset because I, I, I need to live in the house. Right. Um, so now I, I will I will say one caveat. <laughs> in the world where interest rates are zero, he's absolutely right. When interest rates are zero, you should actually take out as much debt as you possibly can and buy appreciating assets. Mm. Right. Now, most that of that sense. was real estate speculation and, mm -hmm. you know, and cash flowing assets. And the difference is cash flowing assets, because if you buy a brownstone and you rent it out to four people and it generates cash to service your debt, you have very little downside. And you have some downside if the price collapses and the rents fall and you can't service your debt. But, but that makes sense. To buy an asset like Bitcoin or gold on leverage where there's no cash flow to service the debt, as long as interest rates are super low, like when they were zero, literally zero, like what he did, he issued debt with zero interest. Okay, that, that's, that's not bad. But now with interest rates closer to four or five, and again, you and I don't borrow at Fed funds. The average person watching this borrows at seven, eight, nine percent That's a different story. Yeah. Very different story. Well, you're the one who told me, um, and it's a very simple analogy. Very, when, you, when you use leverage, you don't own an asset, you're renting it. And yeah. uh, that, that has stuck with me. Um, I am not a... <laughs> sophisticated enough investor to use leverage on my stuff. So I don't, I just buy it and, and hold it. Um, but I, but I, I hear you with that. And, and, and by the way, if you just on your mark to market comment, cause it, one of my favorite people that I love to listen to speak is Cliff Asness. He's a bit of a wild card on Twitter. He's a bit of a hothead. No, he's awesome. But man, I love listening to that guy talk. It's, he's very entertaining, obviously very deep knowledge. He's really smart. Um, and, uh, he said, you can go back. He was on uh, Invest Like the Best. This was like a four-year-old yeah. interview or something. You go back mm -hmm. to 2018 when he did this. Uh, but he was like, because he's a hedge fund guy, right? So he was in Goldman. He was in some, you know, ultra elite little black ops unit in Goldman for a while. Yeah. And then he, yep. you know, he started uh, AQR. And he was like, I was always, uh, you know, I always felt like the we, the hedge fund guys who have to do mark to market at the end of every day, uh, you know, the, the PE guys just had it easy. They didn't, whatever. But he's like, I, now I view it as like, they maybe knew something that I didn't. It's a feature, not a bug. Uh, because exactly. if you had to look at private volatility market volatility, arbitrage, right here, yeah. 
It's volatility arbitrage. Yeah. I mean, it brings it all the way around. I mean, look, Cliff, Cliff is amazing. And you know, people who are in the hedge fund business owe Cliff a debt of gratitude because in 1996, when he founded AQR, he's the first guy who said 2% management fee. And then the lawyers who drafted his docs, every time someone else would start a fund, like, oh, you know, if you don't charge 2%, then you're not a really good fund. So you better charge 2%. So everybody started charging 2%. That's how we got 2% fees because Cliff was a mad genius. I mean, literally. And I don't mean mad like that. I mean, he's, he's amazing. And I, I love Cliff and we've been friends for, I mean, not close friends, but we've been friendly for yeah. years and years and years. And we were one of his first institutional investors. It was really funny. And I shouldn't tell the stories, but I, I won't name names. But someone on my board, I won't name who, but someone on my board wanted to co-invest alongside, make sure. And uh, the the institutional lockup was longer than the personal lockup for new investors. And Cliff, when he started the fund, 1996, had a 50% drawdown. Maybe it was 45, maybe it was 47, but I'll call it 50 for, for drama. Um, and my board guy took his money back. So like, this guy's an idiot. I'm taking my money. And we were stuck. We couldn't because we got a deal for being early. Uh, and we couldn't. And the rest is history. I mean, he went up off, you know, gazillion percent off the bottom. Um, cause that was the whole, you know, 97, you know, weakness with the Asian financial crisis. And, and it just goes to show you that. Human beings do two things really, really well. We buy what we wish we would have bought and we sell what we're about to need. And so one of the things is this feature, not a bug. If you are forced to hold your assets like we were, we got to embrace volatility <laughs> involuntarily, but it worked out for us. And the same thing with private and same thing with lack of mark to market. And, and so I, I, do, I do think we're in a really interesting time where so much money has been created and that that is factual and that's putting pressure on the institution of investing and to your point it's really really hard and everyone's so focused on every little investment oh you lost money on this yeah like we have a venture portfolio we have 70 businesses some of them aren't doing very well some actually are still doing well mm. um but you don't invest in venture for all 70 to work out. Now I say, I wish I knew, you know, we make 30 investments per fund-ish. And I would say, we're gonna follow on in 20 and then we're gonna make five kind of supersized, which means we're not gonna follow on in 10. I say, I wish I knew which 10 before we wrote the first check and then I wouldn't invest in those, but that's impossible. So the power law of investing, and it's true for public and private, is most of your returns come from a very small number of wins. Full stop, right? Yeah. But you have to have the ability to hold on to those winners, which most people don't do. And that's why the average person underperforms. They sell their winners early and then they press their, their losers to show they're right when they should be selling. Yeah. A um, couple follow-up comments. on If you want an uh, interesting backstory of Cliff, um, uh, there's a book. Uh, it's also on my bookshelf, but I can't pull two books out in the same podcast. Uh, so it's called uh, More Money Than God. Uh, Sebastian Malaby is the author. Uh, he, he, I think Cliff gets his own chapter in there. You should give it, give it a, give it a read. Um, but also, uh, I 
brain blanked on the last thing that I was. Well, gonna no, say. no. I mean, I was going to say maybe we should change the the uh, the name of the podcast instead of on the margin. It should be on the money because you got all these these great money books behind you and, and uh, the history. Um, Mark, I got like the nerdiest bookshelf of all time. It's like honestly, you know what you you know what you've got back there is like finance books, and uh, I'm starting to get into. Uh, like sci-fi books, um, you know, like yeah. the Dune series, uh, Three Body Problem, uh, et cetera. Oh, okay. I remember what I was going to say. Uh, so just talking about uh, winners and losers. So I saw this guy uh, tweeting, you know, he runs a hedge fund and he was like, hey, I'm starting to get redemptions because people are pulling out of my fund, which has done well over the course of the last year yes. to rotate into Tiger Asset Management. And Ben Hunt retweeted. He was like, same thing happened to me in basically in uh, 2008. We crushed it in 2008, but people yep. pulled that. They took their winners out of our fund and they rotated it into their big blue chip hedge fund losers. Yep. But it is the it is the little bit of the revenge of the boomers because you know AQR Cliff's fund was doing poorly, right? Of course, yeah. the last like, couple of years he had a, he's had a huge start to the year, and you know who else has Bridgewater Dahlia. Well, but fund. that's what you have to do with portfolios because. Mm managers don't stay at the top yeah. in, in liquid markets, right? They don't. Mm. They mean revert. And mm. so what you should do is you should find someone who's had a shitty year or even better, a shitty three years, and you should buy the heck out of them. And then when someone has a really great year or even better, a really great three years, you Take should rebalance. Out. And so what you should really do is have 10 great long-term track records, 10% each. And then every year, take your 12 back to 10 and take your eight up to, to 10. And, mm. and you'd be really good because in traditional worlds, whether it's mutual funds, hedge funds, nobody stays at the top. Nobody, not anybody, right? It's different in venture. In venture, there's something called serial autocorrelation. And you basically do get a persistence of winners. The top quartile, the Sequoias, the Mayfields, the uh, Kleiners, et cetera, do stay at the top. Why? Well, because the best entrepreneurs are attracted to the brand. And so there is an absolute logic in the venture world to concentrate with only the top quartile and stay there. Uh, whereas in manager world, you need to constantly be trimming and rotating and finding those you know, great people long-term who just had a really crappy short-term period. That's the way yeah. to win. Yeah. Mark, we've gotten over time here. Um, as always, favorite hour of my week. Glad you're back from Europe. Um, and I Thank will see you. Thank you, sir. Great to be back. Great to uh, to hang out with you again. And, and we will uh, we'll talk again in seven days. All right. See you soon. Cheers. Bye.